This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we are going to focus on some important issues, some directly related to COVID, some to other diseases, and some to the health service more generally. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these issues, we have on the line Dr. Matt Castleton, Section Editor and GP, Dr. Abigail Davis, Section Editor, and Emma Scott, Section Editor, who all work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Matt and core COVID problems. Matt, can you tell us about changes in the recommended length of self-isolation for people with symptoms of COVID? Yes, at the end of last month, people with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 are now being recommended for uh, to self-isolate for 10 days rather than seven. Uh, and that applies throughout the UK. Uh, and that starts from the first onset of symptoms uh, and applies to people with milder disease who are in the community. And, and why did the rules change, Matt? So although international data still suggests that most patients will no longer be infectious after seven days, we know that viral shedding does continue for longer and there have been a handful of cases where people have passed on the infection after that seven-day period. So it's a precautionary move and it brings the UK in alignment with World Health Organization guidance and many other national guidelines, including the US CDC guidelines that settled on 10 days uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to shielding. Can you tell us the current position on shielding in the UK? So in most of the UK, Shielding of of people uh, considered extremely clinically vulnerable to COVID-19 was paused at the beginning of this month in early August. Uh, And this means they can now resume all their normal activities, uh, including returning to work uh, if they can't work from home and the workplace is deemed COVID secure. uh, And they can go outside as much as they like, but still maintaining social distancing and keeping their social interactions as low as possible. Okay, thank you. And what about if there's a local lockdown in an area? What do people on the shielded list need to do then? Well, people who who were shielding and who are on the the shielded list uh, should expect to be contacted directly by the government, uh, local national government. As you say, if that area goes into local lockdown after a surge of COVID-19 cases, and and they can expect to, to be advised to to restart shielding. Uh, And that's why NHS Digital uh, are maintaining and actively maintaining this national list of patients who fall into that category. And also why clinicians and perhaps GPs in particular should keep a register um, of shielded patients active. And our BMJ learning module on COVID-19 in primary care does discuss this in a bit more detail. Okay, thank you. And what about supporting patients who are recovering from COVID-19? What can you tell us about that? Last month, the NHS launched a website called Your COVID Recovery. Uh, And at the moment, 
this functions as a as an information resource for patients who have had COVID-19 and who might be experiencing more prolonged effects from the disease, uh, such as breathlessness, fatigue, cough, uh, or anxiety or other mental health problems. What what does it say? What's the general gist of the advice? Well, there's um, uh, different sections on the website. There's uh, practical tips for managing the physical symptoms, techniques for sort of controlled breathing, for example, how to manage an intractable cough. This increasingly recognised problem of some people getting these more prolonged effects or, or after effects from COVID-19. There's also a section on, on mental health and how to manage mental health problems after during the recovery period and advice on sort of thresholds and when to seek further medical advice from their GP or elsewhere. For example, if their symptoms uh, or other pathology needs to be considered, um, for example. Okay, thanks, Matt. Let's move on to Abigail and the health service more generally. Uh, Abigail, we're starting to see publications about the impact of COVID-19 on emergency departments, attendances, and also hospital admissions. What did these studies say? That's right. Concerns have been raised that the diagnosis and treatment of other medical conditions might be delayed during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, for example, um, we know that emergency department attendance in five US states decreased by between 41.5% and 63.5% in early March 2020 um, at the beginning of the lockdown. One study reported a 42% reduction in hospital admissions, um, including significant reductions in the number of admissions for stroke, myocardial infarction, heart failure, COPD and appendicitis in the US. And a third study reported a 47% decrease in new cases of atrial fibrillation during the first three weeks of lockdown in Denmark, compared with the number of cases diagnosed in the same weeks in 2019. Okay, thank you. And what about other conditions like acute coronary syndrome and diabetes and cancer? Um, So those have also been affected. An analysis of hospital admissions in England found a 40% reduction in weekly acute coronary syndrome admissions between mid-February and the end of March 2020, compared with baseline rates from 2019. By the end of May this year, the admission rates for acute coronary syndrome had increased slightly, but were still 16% lower than the baseline average. In Germany, there's been a significant increase in the proportion of children and young people with newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes who had diabetic ketoacidosis during the COVID-19 pandemic, compared with the same months in 2018 and 2019. And in the US, weekly incidents of newly identified cancers fell by 46% during the pandemic. Okay, and, and what about planned care? Planned care is gradually resuming in the UK. Can you tell us more about what guidelines say about this? Yes, NICE in the UK have recently published some guidelines for clinicians on arranging planned care in the context of the COVID pandemic. So they recommend that clinicians should discuss the possible outcomes of the procedure or investigation with patients before reaching a shared decision about whether to proceed. And they say that the discussion should include the benefits of having the planned care and the effects on the patient's health and well-being of postponing it or not having it, making sure that the patient really understands the risks associated with COVID-19 and has given informed consent 
and any alternative options if the patient declines planned care or if it's postponed. And NICE recommend that clinicians should discuss the patient's individual risk. Um, it should be quite personalised. So taking into account personal risk factors such as age, sex, ethnicity, social factors such as whether there are vulnerable family members at home and the patient's occupation, um, as well as the local and national COVID-19 prevalence rates. Okay, thank you. And what about procedures requiring anaesthesia? So all patients whose procedure requires anaesthesia, whether it's local, regional or general, um, should follow comprehensive social distancing and hand hygiene measures for 14 days before admission. Um, and they need to have a test for SARS coronavirus 2 from three days before admission and the results need to be available before they're admitted to hospital. And once they've had the test, they should then self-isolate from that day until the admission. Um, they should be screened for any symptoms of COVID-19 the day before admission and again when they arrive for planned care. During an inpatient stay, visitors are allowed but should be minimised um, in accordance with the hospital's local protocols. And the patients need to be tested again before discharge for SARS coronavirus 2 if they're going to another healthcare facility such as a care home or a hospice. Okay, thanks, Abigail. And lastly, let's move on to Emma and, and some other issues, specifically obesity. Emma, what can you tell us about the association between weight and COVID-19? Uh, well, data from UK and international studies suggest that being overweight or living with obesity is um, associated with an increased risk of getting COVID-19 and also with an increased risk of hospitalisation, having severe symptoms, needing advanced levels of treatment such as uh, mechanical ventilation or admission to intensive care and also death. Um, a recent report from Public Health England notes that these risks increase progressively with increasing BMI above the healthy range, uh, even after adjusting for potential confounding factors such as demographics and socioeconomic status. Okay, thank you. And what's thought to be the explanation for this? Uh, well, there are limited studies on the actual mechanism, but there are a few suggested explanations for the association. One is that um, excess adipose tissue affects respiratory function, cardiovascular system and the inflammatory and immune responses. Also, living with obesity increases the risk of conditions such as type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular and respiratory diseases, which themselves are associated with more severe COVID-19. Um, there's also the suggestion that stigma experienced by people living with obesity might result in delays in them seeking care, so their disease might already be more advanced when they're seen, but more research is needed to understand this. Okay, thank you. And so what's the advice, uh, I wonder? The general advice for those who are overweight or living with obesity is that weight loss can bring huge long-term health benefits generally, reducing the risks for other life-limiting diseases, um, and that it may also provide some protection against the serious complications of COVID-19. The Public Health England report acknowledges that there is currently no high-quality research on the effects of weight loss on COVID-19, but they do suggest that excess weight is one of the few modifiable risk factors where intervention could be potentially effective. Um, and a campaign has been launched in the UK to encourage people towards a healthier weight. They also encourage more research on the association between weight and COVID-19 to build a good evidence base. Okay, thank you very much, Emma and Abigail and Matt. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast.
to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.